Uh, before we jump in here with this message, this, this incredible story about the, the southern kingdom of, of uh, Judah and what they go through and how that might make sense for us, I just wanted to let you guys know, I am just geared up just to be here. I, I was sitting there doing worship, and Josh and the team were up here leading, and I just, I just love being back here. Not, not so much because I wish I was still here, but because coming back here after spending about two weeks uh, in our new home there in northern Kentucky— it just starts to make more sense. Like this whole plan that God has been working on in our lives is just starting to come together. Uh, and it's been, a, it's been an adventure so far. I mean, there's been things that we've had to do to get ready on the house that have allowed us to get to know people at Home Depot, allowed us to get to know people at Porter Paints, uh, allowed us to get to know the neighbors whose tools we need to borrow, things like that, you know. And it's allowed us this opportunity to get to know the community in, in a very powerful way, in a very unique way. Uh, and for instance, if you've, ever, if you've ever been around me uh, when I'm working, maybe we went to Cranks Creek together, maybe I was just walking outside for a short period of time, I tend to perspire quite a bit, right? So, uh, so this, this has been a blazing hot week, and, and so we, they had the outside work that we want to get done. My in-laws were in town. And we had this shrub that was sitting right in front of our front porch. Now, I'm, I'm a big believer, and I, we've even talked about this. You guys have talked about this here at Genesis before, of, of being on your front porch instead of your backyard and, and interacting with your neighbors through that. And so that was a big deal for us, but we got to get this shrub out of the way. And so it was blazing hot on Thursday, and so I'm out there. We're sawing this thing down, and we're taking the shrub out, but then he's got these giant roots. And so we're out there, and we're trying to dig this thing up. We're trying to cut, cut it back as much as we can. We're toe-strapping things to the truck, trying to pull this thing out. And my neighbors just start to come over, right? Like everyone's coming over. Everyone else has been cooped up because it's been blazing hot all day. Everyone's kind of standing there, offering their two cents. People bring tools over, people help us out. And I am just covered in mud and drenched in sweat. I made an incredible great impression, but I got to meet some people I didn't, hadn't met yet, and I got to, got to talk to people I talked to quite a bit down there in, in our cul-de-sac. But the bottom line is it's, it's been an incredible adventure, and there's a lot of work to be done, but we are just so incredibly pumped to be taking this journey. But there's been times so far in this journey where we've kind of had to step back and say, what in the world are we doing? What have we gotten ourselves into? It was, the, it was the weekend that we were going to really do the big move. And so Heidi and I had taken some things down, and then it was 4th of July, and then my family was going to help us take down the rest of the stuff. And in between there, I was speaking at a camp in Illinois, and so we were on a time crunch. We're trying to get stuff done. So we are go over to the storage unit, and we're pulling out boxes, and we get to the back of the storage unit, and it's where all my books are, and water has seeped into the storage unit, ruining boxes of books. I'm just, I'm mad. I'm just mad at this point. Hopefully insurance will take care of that. And it'll get resolved. But in the moment, it was just like, really? Like, this is happening? A little bit later that day, we get a phone call from, from Heidi's mom who says, who says that, hey, Heidi, your Nana, she was in for a heart cath, and they're going to have to do open heart surgery because she has some blockages. And she's recovering fine at home. But in the moment, that was really, really heavy. And then, then later, I, I, I rush home, and I'm like, okay, we got to go. i got to get to Illinois. i got to speak at this camp. I'm really excited about this, but it's kind of one of those things that the timing wasn't perfect. I jump in our car and click. The car doesn't turn over. It's a dead battery, not that big of a deal, but it's just another headache. We come back from, from the camp, and I get, a, I get a call from my mom, and my mom's crying, and the dog that my family had that we had grown up with, not, not Heidi and I's dog, but my family dog, had to be put to sleep after 
and it was time, but it was really, really hard. And so it was this, this moment where you're just like, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Is this, is this, is this resistance? Does that mean that, that there's, there are like spiritual forces against what I'm doing because I'm doing something good? Is it just this how life goes? How in the world did we get here? What in the world's going on? And I think about that moment there and those, those experiences that in the moment, they felt so intense. And as we got farther away, they, they began to lessen and begin to make more sense and begin to resolve themselves. And they were just an annoyance and a headache. But in the moment, you're just, you're kind of throwing up your hands. Like, what's going on? There's other times in our lives where we wonder, how in the world did we get here? And so I, I trying to get, the air, get to know the area down there, I, I get lost intentionally. I drive around the area. I want to know where the neighborhoods are. I want to know where people are. I know, what, know what's going on. And you kind of reach a point where you're like, I know, I know I'm lost. I don't know how long I've been lost. I don't know when I really became lost, but I know I'm lost. I don't know how to get back as you pull up the GPS. Or maybe for you, it's with, uh, with your health. You know, you never intended to be overweight. You never, like, set out and made a conscious decision that you're going to just eat Twinkies and sit on the couch, right? But decision after decision, after indecision, after indecision, after a decision, and suddenly you find yourself down the road that your health is in poor shape. And you never really wanted that, but that's where you are. Or maybe it's with your finances. You know, you had an had a, a emergency happen. You had a car breakdown. The furnace went out, whatever it was. All of a sudden, you had to take out a loan, you put it on a credit card, whatever it might be, and before you know it, you're just kind of barely keeping up with the interest, and it's just building and building. You never intended to be in debt. You never intended to be in a situation where you couldn't order a pizza on a Friday night, but here you are. Uh, maybe for you, it's relationships. You never intended for, for November and December to be some of the most awkward and trying months of your life. You never intended for Thanksgiving and Christmas to be those times where it's just quiet intense. You never intended for those months to be spent alone because your family is, has just fractured for whatever reason and, and splintered and isolated themselves. You never set out and said, this is what my family is going to be, but after a while, it just suddenly got there. And then in these moments, when we're at that point, we just kind of ask ourselves, how in the world did we get here? Good and bad, but mainly this really bad, hard experiences how did we get to this point, and what are we going to do about it to get out of there? Well, you guys have been tracking along in the story. Uh, you're going through the entire Bible, and I love the way it's kind of arranged because it takes stories that are contemporary to each other, stories that are happening from the same, during the same time around the same events, and they're just different points of views, where in our Bibles, traditionally, they're really spread out, but in the story, they kind of stack them up together and kind of put them side by side. And an interesting that thing that happens in chapter 18 of the story that we're going to talk about today is we get to see that. But we're going to begin in 2 Chronicles 33. We'll get there in a moment. We'll get there in a moment in terms of, of, of the story that we're going to look at. But if you've been reading along, or maybe you've ever done a, a Bible reading plan, you know that when you get to First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, things can start to slow down. Because there seems to be this repetitive nature to things. This repetitive nature where the people, Israel, God's chosen people, start out completely committed to God. And then they start to fall off, and then they get into some really just abject sin, just some evil, evil stuff. 
And then something happens, they repent, and they come back to God, and the cycle starts all over again. And if you read this, and especially if you read it straight through, you see this pattern emerge over and over again. It was almost as if the writers wanted to get this really, really clear that this is the pattern of sin. This is the pattern of incomplete repentance. This is the pattern when you step away from God. And so as we walk through the Bible by using this story, we get to this difficult place where we see this pattern emerge over and over again. And as you read it, you can probably sense God's frustration building. You can sense God's kind of, I don't know what else to do with you people attitude building. Remember, these were God's chosen people that God didn't just choose to bless, but chose to bless them so that they could bless the rest of the world. He chose to be with these people so the rest of the world could experience him. Now, to top it off, these chosen people have split themselves. There's been a civil war, a fracturing of the nation. So you have Israel, the northern kingdom, which you guys have talked about a little bit. And then you have Judah, the southern kingdom. Okay, And so these are, at times, warring factions. At times, they're allies, but they're very separate. And they're very distinct. And they've intentionally separated themselves. And last week, you talked about how the northern kingdom had strayed so far, to, so far from God. There was such a distance that God even allowed a foreign army, the Assyrians, to come in and enslave these people, God's chosen people, and scatter them throughout the world. And we talked about uh, this guy named of, uh, of Hezekiah. We're going to talk about him here in a moment. We talked about how Hezekiah called out to God. And you guys talked about the secret of prayer. You know, the, the, you, you could write a book on this and, and put it on the New York Times bestseller and, and all this stuff, right? Like you could, you could go through this and kind of distill it down and people would look at it because we want to know what is the secret to prayer. And it's not really a five-step process. It's not like you have to stand on one foot and you have to do it at noon or something like that. But the secret to prayer that we talked about last week, that you guys talked about last week, was that Hezekiah was believing in a God who can answer those prayers. You know, that was the true secret of, of his prayer. And so Hezekiah, this rare king, he's this, this king who saw what was happening in the north in Judah. He gets the message. He wa doesn't want the same thing to happen to Israel in the south. And so he tears down the idols. He returns people back to worshiping the one true God. But eventually, like all of us, Hezekiah dies. And in his place, Manasseh comes up as king. So 2 Chronicles chapter 33, starting in verse 1. 2 Chronicles 33, uh, verse 1. This is 231 in, your, in the, the story, if you're looking at that. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. So stop right there. Maybe that was the issue. I don't know how many 12-year-olds you work with. Got a little experience. They're fun, but that's it. Uh, <laughs> wisdom is lacking. So he's 12-year-old, he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all of the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to, to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his children in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. 
Let's sit with that for a second. That was a long, that was six verses. That was, there was a lot of content there. But let's sit with that for a second. This, this boy king who reigns for 55 years reverses all the progress that his father has made. He rebuilds the high places. He builds Asherah poles and temples to Baal. And of these places where you would go and worship, the worship wouldn't be like this. It would be some of the most explicit things that we could imagine. There was all sorts of ways that sexuality was tied into worship of these things in a very, very depraved nature. So he rebuilds these things. He also tries to have it both ways because he also puts up temple, puts, does things in the temple of God. So he's trying to have it both ways, but, but you want to talk about evil. He sacrifices his own children by burning them. You want to talk about just, just total evil. Just a view of the world that is so morally and utterly corrupt and bankrupt. This is what this king, this king of God's chosen people lives out. And this is what he leads people back into. He borrows from other religions and other philosophies and other ways of living of the people that surround him, and he institutes these things there. So this isn't just a, a competing philosophy on life. This isn't a, like a differing political ideology. This is a fundamentally different way to view the world. And this is an evil way to view the world. But it wasn't just the king that was causing these problems. It was the people of Judah as well. In, in chapter 33, again there in 2 Chronicles, starting in verse 9, it says that Manasseh, but Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray, so that they did more evil than the nations of the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. See, when Israel comes into the promised land, they have to remove these people who are practicing many of these things, many of these detestable, evil, violent, just bloody, debased things. And so God looks at this and says, you're worse than the people that you replaced. It's almost as if God can see things becoming so desperate, he has to do something drastic. It would be like a, a parent who watches a, a child who's becoming a young adult or an adult just continually make bad decisions. And you want to get them to stop, but you can't. No, no words seem to, to change anything. Maybe you have a friend who's, who's doing something like this, and you know them before the addiction, you know them before whatever it was, and you see them now, and you see how different they are, and, and whatever you do, and no matter how much you care, no matter how much you plead, they don't really change. And so maybe you have to cut them off. Maybe you have to create some distance. Maybe you have to speak some words that are true, but they're very, very hurtful. And I think God is in a similar situation here where he looks at his people, his chosen people, and he says, you're doing such horrible, horrible things. I have to do something here. I have to do something drastic. But right before the southern kingdom of Judah gets the exile treatment that happened to the northern kingdom of Israel, something incredible happens. Verse 13 of chapter 33. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria. They get invaded who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. In his distress, yeah, a little bit of distress, like a bronze hook in your nose. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. So this king who is doing all this is suddenly shackled. He's got a hook in his nose. He's being led by like an ox to Babylon. 
he humbles himself, he repents to God, God moves, gets things situated, gets things reversed, and so he's able to go back to Jerusalem. And so Judah makes this turn. Judah is once again saved from the hands of a foreign nation, of course, until another king comes along. As we've read through this section of the story, as you've read through these parts of the Bible, both the Kings and the Chronicles, it can almost become predictable, this pattern. They, they're following God, then they stray, then they follow, then they stray. It's like watching weight, our weight go up and down. It's like, it's like the, the yo-yo that we might be on financially. And I think there's a reason for this kind of constant move, this constant cyclical pattern. It really reflects what's happening in my life, what's happening in your life today. I think it absolutely makes sense for us today. We follow for a while, then we wander for a while. We follow for a while, and then we wander. And those periods of wandering can really make a mess of things. We see it in so many different areas of our lives, in the financial choices, in our marriages. We see it when we end up maybe in legal trouble. We see it when we aren't careful with the words we use. We end up hurting something we care about. I think about this as, as, a, as, a, as a dad, as a fairly new dad. I think I want to see it as a parent. You know, I, if I just continually put off things, spending time with my son, like eventually, eventually that's gonna, it's going to blow up bad, right? Like eventually that's going to matter and make a difference in Isaac's life. And that inconsistency of being there and not being there, that, that would be a, be a horrible pattern to, to establish. But in so many other areas of our lives, that's what we do. A couple weeks ago, I was on the Genesis Noblesville Facebook page. And I noticed that a lot of you were, were really tracking and really resonating with, with a message on idolatry. You guys were wanting kind of the notes. You were wanting to know kind of some of the markers that they talked about. And you were really taking that to heart. Because a lot of us, a lot of us, you know, we take something that's good and we, we turn them into idols because we elevate them above God. And a lot of us deal with that. But many times it's not that we've, we've elevated idols in lives that have intentionally replaced God. Many times we just get sloppy. In our search for joy, we, we go seeking things that, that might bring us happiness, but are really a very poor substitute for God. I think this is a really key point. It's in your notes. I, I think what, what happens is that most of us don't run away. We don't, there's not an intentional point where we say, I'm walking away from this. That's not usually the case. What's usually the case is that we wander away. There's all these studies on people who, are, uh, who consider themselves atheists people who, or people who have left the church. And I'm looking at a lot of this stuff as I think about church planning and connecting with these people, people who don't have a church. And it's shocking how many of them were very much a part of church, uh, church culture at some point in their lives. It wasn't as if these people just have, haven't heard. They've heard. And it was also very interesting that time and time again, these people weren't saying it was like, hey, I can put the date and this is when it happened and this is when I walked away and this is when I made that decision to leave that stuff. But it was a wandering. It was a slow, gradual process. And then they reached a point where like, oh yeah, I, I don't even believe in anything anymore. And so just like most of us don't plan on getting fat, don't plan on going into debt, we don't plan on running from God. We're just not intentional about seeking God in our lives. So instead of being set apart, we tend to blend in. And in fact, there's all these surveys out there about how much we blend in as American Christians. You look at an American Christian, what they do, how they spend their money, how they, how they consume media, how they, they treat their neighbors, all kinds of measurables. And they're very, very similar. There's negligible difference between a group that says they're a Christian and a group that says they're not in this culture. So we blend in. But why is that? How can it be that we wander so, off, far, so far off course that we look around and wonder, 
how did I even get here? Uh, there was a recent study by the Barna Group. Barna is kind of the, the Pew Research Forum, but for, for matters of faith and Christianity. They, they do incredible work. And they picked out kind of four recurring areas that us Christians are solely lacking at being intentional about. And they're in your notes, and, and you might want to write these down. The first one is commitment. Uh, the people surveyed who were self-proclaimed Christians, about 80% said that they had made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. But only about 20% said they were intentional investing in their own spiritual development. That can explain why half of them feel like there should be more to this Christian life than there is. Commitment. The second one is repentance. About two-thirds of those surveys said that they have confessed their sins to God and asked for forgiveness. Okay, that's great. But repentance goes beyond just confessing. Repentance has to do with not only confessing our sin, but turning from our sin. And only 3%, 3% have reached the final step of repentance where they confess to God and others and turn from their sin and turn their entire lives over to him and his will. This is so important because if we don't do this, we're prone to wander back into sin. Now, this isn't about perfection. This isn't about I'm repenting, I'm turning, I'm never dealing with this ever again. That's not what this is about. But this is about making an intentional decision to step away, putting things in your life, barriers to prevent an easy fall back into that. Okay, so it's not about perfection, but it's about a process of repentance. The third one is spiritual activity. While nearly 40% of Christians, 40% had taken part in at least three spiritual activities in the past week, so this, church services, maybe a prayer meeting or a prayer on your own, or maybe you read scripture, far fewer, less than one in 10, so 10%, so we go from 40 to 10, have taken part in a more personal, private expression of their faith, like fasting, spiritual reflection. Also, less than 10% had talked to anyone about Jesus in the last week. So, so we're really good at, well, marginally, we're good at coming together, 40%. But those of us here, about 10, about 10% of us do anything outside of this. And the fourth one is spiritual community. Again, these 80% who claim to be Christians, far fewer felt like being part of any spiritual community. So, so coming to a church and really investing or serving and joining a connection group, things like that. Only 20% felt like this was an important aspect of their faith. But if you're not connected to other believers and you're not living life alongside them, then you're not looking at the world and the culture for how to live. Then you're looking at the world and the culture for how to live. Now let me stop there before I go on. I look at this list, I compare myself to these four things, and I feel a little guilty. Like, like shame and guilt well up because I realize I'm not hitting all four of these really well. And so I can assume that for some of you, you might have experienced, experienced this same feeling right now. And so don't hear me saying that if you don't match up to these things, you're a bad person. Okay, don't hear that. This is just a diagnosis of where we are. Okay, let's just, let's, 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 let's fight back that guilt and that shame. In Scripture, in Romans 12, verse, verse 2, there's kind of this, this great line from the Apostle Paul that, that really speaks to this. Romans 12, verse 2. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, that's in the NIV, but there's another translation called The Message that, that's very much written for modern language. Uh, it's a little bit different, but I like how they translate this. The same verse, different translation. It says, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. So you look at that list, you, you, you think about how you're doing, you, you try to avoid the guilt, you try to avoid the shame, because that could really cripple you, and 
But notice how shallow and incomplete our lives can be if we just focus on one or two of those things. You know, maybe we got the commitment part. We've made a personal commitment to God. Maybe we get the spiritual activity part. We've, we've joined a connection group. We're here on Sundays, however we might mark that. But we might lack in that spiritual community. We don't know our neighbors. We're not telling people about Jesus. And then, therefore, all we're really doing is activity. And all we're really doing is very individualistic, very, very shallow, and very, very, very center-focused on ourselves. And so God here, going back to our story in 2 Chronicles, looks at the people of Judah. He sees that they've wandered away. In fact, so much that they look like the idol-worshiping nations around them. That God allows them to get captured by one of them. So in 586 B.C., the nation of Babylon, led by a king named Nebuchadnezzar, invades and captures Judah. And the walls around the city are destroyed. The temple is destroyed. Every sign of power and prestige is brought down. And many of the people are captured and dispersed to the surrounding nations. But there's a small group of people that are left behind. The Bible refers to them as the remnant. These chosen people, God's chosen people are defeated. And they're scattered to the ends of the earth to be slaves. But the redeeming part of this defeat is that we see that God never stops pursuing these people. Those that have been scattered, those that remain, God is still present in their lives. And maybe that's a great reminder for you. You can look at what's happening in Judah and think, that's it. It's over. There's no coming back from this, but it's not. And maybe you look at your life and you think, my situation, it's over. There's no coming back. There's no way to put things back the way they they once were. But it's not over. But so God is not limited to a single strategy of working with a king. He works with other people. He works with these, these people called prophets. And so he sends another messenger, a prophet by the name of Jeremiah, to help get his people back on the right path. Now, I love the prophets because they do crazy things. They do crazy things to get the message out. These guys understood viral marketing in the ancient world. They understood what it's going to take to get people's attention and get people to remember what was said and what the message that was contained. But Jeremiah is kind of hesitant to accept uh, this call. He says, I'm too young, I don't know how to speak, but God convinces Jeremiah that his presence will go with him wherever he goes. But then God says something very interesting. He tells him that the people are stubborn, and that they're so stubborn that they're not going to listen to him. So Jeremiah is being commissioned by God to go and tell people about him, and he says, oh, one more thing, you're going to go, and you're going to fail. You're going to go and share this message, and people will not respond. You're going to go and tell them about me, and they're going to laugh at you. They're going to mock you. They're going to walk away from you. You know, you think about those, those times where you're trying to tell someone, trying to give them advice, trying to share some truth with them, and you know if they follow this, their lives will be better. But you know as soon as they walk away from you that they're not listening and that they're going to do it their own way. It's kind of like that for Jeremiah. He's going and telling these people, you know what, I know there's something better. I know there's a better life for you, and this is how you get back to it. This is how you return to the life that God intended for you. And as you go, I know you're going to ignore me and go back and do whatever it is that you were doing before. And so Jeremiah comes to deliver God's message, not as someone who is bitter, not as someone who is just carrying out an order, an attitude that maybe I would embody if I was given this task of, of guaranteed failure, He's not just fulfilling a job. Jeremiah preaches the word of God with a broken heart. His words are so profound, they're so, 
They're so filled with emotion. He's often referred to as the weeping prophet. It's almost as if his, as he's speaking, his heart's on his sleeve, his heart is breaking so much in front of them that he can't contain his emotion, and it just drives him to tell more and more people about God. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11 through 13, Jeremiah is speaking. He says, Has a nation ever changed its God? Yet there are not gods at all, but my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you, you heavens. Shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. That, that symbolism, we might miss that. That's the idea of a, of a cistern. This idea of a well. In a passage like this, it may not be immediately obvious to us, but it would be to the people who heard it for the first time. You know, if you've ever tried to really dig a big hole, you know it can be exhausting. I was on the, uh, the Haiti trip, I think two trips ago, about 18 months ago, we were down in Haiti. And one of our jobs was they were having a campus. They had kind of gone to their version of a multi-site in one of the tent cities nearby the compound. And so literally they set up a tent and had church there in the middle of this tent city. Well, obviously, some of the facilities and some of the infrastructure in a tent city are lacking, right? So we built them an outhouse. We built them a facilities right there. And so we framed it up, and I remember Larry Foyer was a big part of that, and Daniel Kopik, and we put the little crescent moon in the door and all that, you know? So we built this outhouse, but, but, but we didn't dig the hole. So we go to deliver this outhouse, and we show up, and there is a, like, perfectly square hole for the outhouse that's going to sit on and we look at it and you can tell it's been dug by hand you can tell that someone got down there went way down there and dug this and it's square straight down and then they bring the guy up and he's like five two buck thirty right and he's got a shovel on his on his shoulder he's like smiling he's like yeah <laughs> he does this because he dug this hole but he, he had to do incredibly hard work. If you've been to Haiti or you can imagine, it, doesn't, it has rainy seasons and the dry seasons. We were there in the dry season, and so the ground is rock hard. There's, there's literally rocks in the ground, but this guy had gotten the work done. And so you can imagine the symbolism of this story that, that here, here, here Jeremiah is saying, it's like you would go out in this hard, rocky ground and you would dig a well by yourself when there's a perfectly functioning, clean, living, always refreshing, cold well right here. It's idiotic, it's moronic, and it doesn't make any sense why anyone would think to do this, but this is what's happening when they wander away from God. So you imagine digging that well. You imagine breaking your back to dig a big enough hole. But the, the, the cistern doesn't even have water in it. It doesn't hold it. When you wander off course, when you go your own way, on your own way, you're trading the spring of living water for a leaky cistern. There are a lot of leaky cisterns in our lives. There are a lot of things out there that we can put a lot of hope in that, that probably aren't going to pan out. We might get them, but they're probably not going to have the promise that we hoped they would. Maybe a certain career or a degree. I, I encountered a woman who was, who was living in poverty in our first ministry. And she was living in poverty with her family, and we had helped this family over and over again. And she went to the local community college and got herself a pharmacy tech degree and graduated with a 4.0 GPA. She got this degree, and she couldn't find a job. She got this degree expecting that the job would just happen, would just come, but it didn't come. 
She didn't know how to interview. She wouldn't take advice. She wouldn't take help from people in our church to help her prepare and dress well for that. And so she quit looking. She had all this hope for this degree, and it, and it didn't pan out. Another leaky cistern could be politics. Something that can be very good, very beneficial, very helpful, and, and, and honestly fun to be a part of and participate in. But it can become a leaky cistern when we put all of our hope behind one ideology, one party, one candidate. They don't hold water. Some of our friendships, even the romantic relationships that we put all our hope in can become leaky cisterns. And there's an awful lot of movies, songs, TVs, shows, rock stars, bands, sports teams, tickets for, to a show, whatever it is, that we put all of our hope, even vacations, where we put all of our hope into going there, and it's going to be incredible. We build it up, we build it up, and it kind of leaves us lacking. Now, a lot of those things are good. A lot of those things aren't bad. A lot of these things, are, in fact, none of these things are inherently bad, but when we treat them inappropriately, they become bad, and we wander. Unfortunately, we have a God of second chances. A God, the God that created you, the God who knit you together in your mother's womb, the God who knew you before you were even born, also offers another chance. A second, a third, a fourth, a thirtieth. We serve a God who loves to forgive. It's in his nature. There's a book in the Bible called Lamentations that was most likely written by Jeremiah. It seems to have been written soon after the fall of Judah to Babylon. In fact, somebody, somebody said, a critic, a kind of a scholar who studies these things, said the whole song stands so near the events that one feels everywhere as if the terrible pictures of the destruction stand still immediately before the eyes of the one lamenting. It almost has this kind of post-apocalyptic feel, just this dystopian, just no hope feel. And in Lamentations chapter 3, we, we start to see one of the only real glimmers of hope, starting in verse 22. It says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. Because of God's great love, we are not consumed. We are not overwhelmed. We are not defeated. It is not over because of God's great love. No matter where you find yourself today, it is not over. The story isn't done. These people had everything that they had loved and cherished and every symbol that meant something to them destroyed, ruined, torn down, families broken apart, tribes and people scattered throughout the entire known world. The people left have no idea what they're going to do. They're completely vulnerable, completely helpless. They realize, how in the world did I get here? How do we wander so far from God? But in the moment of this, they say, because of God's great love, we are not consumed and great is his faithfulness. See, God is faithful even when we are not. That's, a, that's such a powerful statement. God is faithful even when we are not. When we make mistakes, when we step out on our own, God is still faithful. God is the one who's there. God is the one who stays with us, maybe even particularly when we step away from him. In those moments where you look around, you have no idea how you got where you are. You have no idea what's next. You don't know how you're going to get back. It's these moments that we see God's faithfulness. Uh, I, I want to skip ahead here a little bit because there's this powerful story where we see in the, in the New Testament. It's, it's a story that Jesus tells in, in Luke chapter 15. It's a popular story. It's the prodigal son story. Many of you know it. I remember one of the first sermons I attended and uh, heard when I first came here to Genesis before I was even on staff. We talked about the prodigal son and the power of this story. 
But the prodigal son story is something that we know, but let me recap it. There's a, there's a father with two sons, and the younger son wanders away from the father. He, he makes pretty much a, a conscious decision, I'm out, give me half of my inheritance, and goes on his way. If you know the story, he blows all of his money on, on wild living and, and prostitutes and who knows what else. And he soon finds himself broke looking for a job. And here he is, a young Jewish boy, goes to a farmer, and the farmer gives him a job slopping the pigs. The pigs, these unclean animals, these animals that to a Jewish man would be just detestable. And to eat these would create distance between you and God. And so the son's looking around, how in the world did I get here? How did my life end up like this? And so he's looking at these scraps, and he realizes that the scraps, they look pretty good. They look pretty tasty. And so he's hungry, but he thinks... This is ridiculous. What am I doing here? My servants at my father's house eat better than I'm eating now. And so he decides to go back and beg for a job, beg for forgiveness. Even to be the servant would be better than his current state. So in Luke chapter 15, verse 20, he says, So he got up and went to his father. He returns home. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe. Put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The picture we get in the story is a father who's anxiously awaiting the return of his son. I think that every day he walked out to his property line, he walked out to the road, and he watched and he waited. He, he never gave up hope that the, his son, who had so insulted him, who had so turned his back on everything that he had given him, on his love and family that was so important, he had turned his back on that, but the father still went expecting to see him return. You know, maybe, maybe this will be a day where my son comes home. How many times would he have to say that and almost convince himself that it, it's possible? Again, another story that shows the heart of God, that God is faithful even when we're not. You know, here's, here's what you need to know today. Maybe you've been, been intentional about your walk with God, or maybe you haven't. You know, maybe you're here just because there's some sort of family pressure or an expectation, or, or this is just what you do. You know, this, is, this is what you do. You go to church on Sunday mornings. Maybe you're here because uh, someone invited you, and you're just here, and the music was cool, and now some young guy's talking, and you don't really know what's going on. Maybe you're here for, for, for any number of reasons, but you're here. And maybe you've strayed a little bit, maybe you've wandered. But whatever the case, know that, that, that God isn't upset with you, that God isn't frustrated with you, that God is not up there just mad waiting to give you punishment. That God doesn't operate this way. So don't let any guilt or shame creep in here. But understand that part of God's faithfulness is offering a better life. It's what Jesus referred to as the full life. It's not an easy life. It's not a rich life. But it's a full life. And God will never force you into this life. You still get to make that call yourself. But God's faithfulness is about creating continual and perpetual opportunities for you to embrace this and countless chances to return back to it. Because here's the truth. We have all wandered. And more or less, all of us will wander again. But God, this creator of the universe that is so ridiculously crazy about you and me, that, that, that he is not only waiting for you to return like that father standing on the property line, but he's pursuing you right where you are. 
you may feel so far from God, but know that God is right there. Because there is a better way. And sometimes when we ask, how in the world did we get here? And things feel utterly and completely hopeless. It is in these moments where God is faithful, where God is right there, ready to lead you back. Let's pray. Father, I, 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 I come here and um, excited to connect with these people, but Lord, more, more excited to share what you have spoken through your word. Lord, we, we come to you uh, with all sorts of stories, backgrounds, and context for our lives. And, and some of them are, are probably very messy, very confusing. And, 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 we, and we, are, we are at a place maybe where we don't know what to do next. Maybe it was in part of, part of our, our decisions, part of our indecisions, the decisions of others, whatever it might be that has brought us to this place, Lord. Help us to sit with this idea, this fact that you are faithful. That regardless of what happened, what's happening, or what will happen, that you are faithful to us. That we can read a story from Second Chronicles, this history of these people being defeated and embarrassed and humiliated and exiled and enslaved, but we see that you're still faithful. You know, maybe we see ourselves as the younger son who, who goes away and, and is trying to come back. Or maybe we see ourselves as the older son who casts judgment on the younger son's return. But Lord, we know that wherever we might be, that you are faithful. That you are faithful to us. And you are continually offering us that full life. That life that, that is better. And that life that is a gift from you. And so Lord, I pray for this, this church, this body, this community. That we would all experience that full life in a new way today in a way that we haven't felt for a while. Lord, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.